John Williams here. So the GDP went up 2.9% in the fourth quarter. Producer Pete noticed these two consecutive bulletins on his phone, took a screen grab and sent it to me. The first one is from the New York Times. Breaking news. U.S. economy grew at a 2.9% annual rate in the fourth quarter, a solid pace that reflected the resilience of consumers and businesses. Just below that, breaking news, Wall Street Journal. U.S. economic growth cooled slightly to 2.9% annual rate in the fourth quarter, capping a year of high inflation and rising interest rates. Womp womp. So which is it? Jack Ablin, the chief investment officer and founding partner at Crescent Capital, is 2.9% a good number or a bad number? Right direction or wrong direction, Jack? Well, let's, let's break it down. Um, 2.9% was better than what was expected. So from, from that uh, perspective, I'd say, you know, win one for the New York Times. Um, however, uh, if you break it down, and again, I'm not an economist, but I do look at data. Uh, most of the, the increase in expenditures, sure, uh, consumer uh, did spend uh, a lot on service, not as much on goods. But it really came from the government. Um, government expenditures totaled an annualized rate of 3.7. So that was higher than the overall, uh, which meant that everything else, well, it, it does mean everything else was below that 2.9. So consumer expenditures, 2.1, not bad. Um, but again, that shift towards services away from goods. And then if you look at probably one of the worst factors uh, is inventories. Uh, well, I should say it's a, one of the biggest contributors was inventories, which means that uh, companies are producing goods, but they're not selling them. They're piling up in warehouse on warehouse shelves. So um, from that perspective, we look at new orders minus inventories, and we're pretty close to recession levels. Talk to me about this um, debt ceiling showdown that's going to maybe hit in June uh, or maybe not hit in June. Uh, obviously, we're past that point, but Treasury is now doing things to actually manage the crisis or the, the, the lack of sufficient funds. But what do you think about all of that? Yeah, so from a creditor's point of view, anyone lending money to the U.S. government, which, you know, and many of our creditors are not U.S. citizens or U.S. companies, um, they're really two factors that they need to look at. One is the ability to pay our bills, uh, and we certainly have the ability to service our debt and not expand our debt. Uh, but the other really is the willingness, um, the governance around managing that debt load. And there, I think, if we do have another showdown that's similar to what we experienced in 2011 when, we, when S&P downgraded our debt, um, that could be problematic. Do you think it is likely? I mean, what do you think is going to happen? It's hard to say. I mean, the, the, the problem is um, because of the uh, allure of grandstanding, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of incentive for people to, you know, kind of stomp their feet and not want to do anything in Congress. Uh, and that may buy them, you know, certain uh, points among their constituency. Uh, but the bigger picture really will suffer. Yeah, one wonders, too, if you tell your constituency, I did it, if they're going to say thank you or not. I mean, be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you promise, you know? 
That's it. You know, and the, the problem is, sure, we could, you know, the Treasury could mint a trillion dollar coin and try to get around all of this. But the fact remains is if uh, we really do have a governance problem, this is a test. If we have a governance problem, the credibility of our standing, I think, will diminish a little bit. I've heard a little bit about that. Let's not dwell on it. But you just said if the Treasury mints, if, if we mint a trillion dollar coin, which sounds like a trick that the United States should not have to resort to. But there's actually some conversation about something like that, right? Yeah, that's it. And and to me, I, I think that uh, it's it's really the governance and it's the ability to work together transcends all of those gimmicks. Uh, at the end of the day, we know everyone knows that we can pay our bills. Everyone knows we could probably double the amount of debt outstanding and still pay our bills. Um, but if you think about what the debt really represents um, to uh, to Congress, it it allows uh, the Republicans to say, "Look, we're cutting taxes, and we've you know we succeed in our pledge of you know cutting taxes." And it allows the Democrats to say, we've expanded services and look at all the things we're doing for you. And so both parties can declare victory uh, because we are cutting taxes and we're increasing spending. Uh, and where that, uh, where that plug figure is, is, of course, the debt. How important are interest rates to the economy in 2023? It seems like we've peaked and are going down. Can we count on a nice slide back? Well, here's the thing. Um, interest rates are, are going to be, I will say, permanently higher for as far as I can tell for a while. And the reason is central banks, particularly the Federal Reserve, held interest rates artificially low for nearly 14 years. Um, so I think that in, interest rates just going back to normal mean that they have to be higher than they were. If 2022 was a year where the markets reacted to the higher interest rates, and that's all it really was, I mean, Yes, there was a somewhat of a pullback in, in housing, but for the most part, and we saw with this 2.9 number today, the economy was largely unaffected by the higher interest rates, and that's because of the lag effect. So if 2022 was a year where the markets uh, reacted to interest rates, I believe 2023 is a year where the economy is going to react to the higher interest rates, and so we do expect slower growth ahead. Okay, that's where we are today. Jack Ablin is the Chief Investment Officer and Founding Partner at Crescent Capital, CrescentCapital.com. Really interesting insight, Jack. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, John. Joan Salzman joins us, a senior reporter from CNET. Three things I want to cover. Joan, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready, John. Hit me. Uh, well, let's start with Google. And I did not realize they're being sued by several states uh, because they claim they have a monopoly on advertising. Is that right? Yeah, well, that's what the Department of Justice and these eight states are alleging in a new suit. So Google is not a stranger to lawsuits um, attacking what people claim is antitrust behavior. The most recent one came yesterday, or Tuesday, I believe. Sorry, excuse me. And it alleges that, it's, that Google is abusing monopoly power of online advertising to harm advertisers and publishers. And so, you know, that kind of antitrust uh, element may seem sort of far removed from everybody's everyday lives, but Google services like Gmail and, and Chrome web browser are popular largely because they're free. 
And they're free because there is this underpinning of a massive advertising money machine underneath them that lets them offer those things for free. So it could have repercussions for publishers, for advertisers, for Google, for other tech companies, since it's coming with lots of other antitrust sentiment among big tech, and for people like us, too. Well, I could understand how you'd break up Live Nation and Ticketmaster or something like that, but Mm -hmm. how do you break up a website? How do you break up a Google? I mean, it's Google. What are you going to do? Well, the lawsuit wants to force Google to sell off parts of its ad business. Specifically, it wants it to sell off its ad manager technology and an advertising exchange. And basically what that's doing is it's trying to unwind Google's acquisition of Ad Exchange DoubleClick in in 2008 and ad management technology maker AdMeld in 2011. So it's, you know, more than a decade later, in some cases, looking at what the effect those acquisitions have been on the larger industry. And the DOJ in these states are accusing Google of those, those acquisitions leading to a monopoly situation that should not be allowed to continue. I thought Donald Trump was banned for life from Meta's <laughs> platforms, but now they're saying they're going to put him back on Instagram and Facebook. What's the rationale for this turnabout? Right. Well, Twitter was supposedly his lifelong ban, oh, okay. and that disappeared. That disappeared when Elon Musk came came into power at Twitter. With with Meta, um, owner of Facebook and Instagram, the ban was originally a two year ban, and they sort of punted on what would happen at that two year point for two years. Since the um, the the deadline of that has come due. And the decision that Meta made was that they're going to allow Trump, who is running for president again, as, as everyone knows, um, allow him to regain use of Instagram and Facebook. There will be um, what they call new guardrails and that he will face heightened penalties for repeat offenses. But it does mean he gets another online megaphone. Well, he's already got Truth Social. I don't know if it's a megaphone. How does Truth Social do mm. these days? Well, his, yeah, his following on Truth Social, um, which if people aren't familiar, it's the um, social sort of alternative social network that he um, helped found. He's one of the founders of. It, it still trails far behind his audience on Facebook, Instagram, and definitely Twitter. He has 87.8 million followers on Twitter compared with less than 5 million followers on Truth Social. Now, Facebook and Instagram are like 34 million 23 million, not near Twitter, but still multitudes, you know, magnitudes more than what he has on Truth Social. Even though he's not active on those platforms, people, quote unquote, still follow him. And only 5 million people follow him on his signature platform. Interesting. The ACLU tweeted, this is the right call, like it or not. President Trump is one of Mm. the country's leading political figures, and the public has a strong interest in hearing his speech. Uh, to, To which I would say, nobody's keeping people from hearing his speech. You can uh, subscribe to his platform or or follow him in a number mm. of ways. I don't think it's an obligation of any platform to host him, but what do you think about the ACLU there? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely in keeping with the ACLU's stance on, on civil liberties and freedom of speech. Um, but I, I also, you know, it, it points out the fact that these are private companies. You know, Twitter, we had all these different scenarios. Twitter had a lifelong ban that's no longer in existence. Uh, Facebook had a two-year ban that they're letting him back on, but claiming, saying 
planning that they will have heightened penalties. You know, kind of the idea that you already got like a significant ban once. If you break the rules again, you're, you're a repeat, if you show you're a repeat offender, then there will they didn't specify what those guardrails will be or what those heightened penalties will be. But it, it, I mean, they feel you makes a makes a good point. He is a politician, and but you also, I mean, it's it's really complicated. You make a great point too that you know, it's not like he's not getting any ability to reach his followers or people want to hear him. So it, it's a very complicated um, mm-hmm. landscape that everyone's trying to figure out what is right and what is ethical. Reminds me of people who get fired f- from or suffer consequences for something they say, and they say, where's my First Amendment right to speech? And the answer is always, yeah. yes, you said it. Nobody kept you from saying it. But that doesn't yeah. mean there can't be consequences, like you could get fired for exercising your First Amendment right. We're out of time. Joan Salzman is a senior reporter at CNET. This and more interesting writing at CNET.com. Thank you, Joan. Thanks, Jen. Wintrust Business Lunch on WGN. There's been a lot of conversation lately about bicycle safety, about utility trucks, parking in bike lanes, blocking views, and then tragedy ensues, or it's just continually inconvenient. Chicago has been trying to become a more bike-friendly city, but how are we doing? Ben Harvey is with us now, an organizer with Chicago Bike Grid Now. He's the creator of a new Ride Real app called Ride Real. We'll talk about that in just a second. Thanks for joining us. You're on WGN. Ben, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? You're also, uh, I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, You're also a web developer. So which are you first, a bike enthusiast or a computer guy? I wouldn't even say I'm a a bike enthusiast. I'm just a dude who wants to get around on a bike. I And uh, I think that the infrastructure is failing us. Um, In Chicago last year, there were over 100,000 car crashes, uh, and those crashes caused $183 million in damages. There were over 2,200 severe injuries, and 147 people were killed. And we've just accepted this as a fact of life. And my argument and my idea, my plan for this app is uh, this is not the fault of individual drivers. Um, This is a greater structural problem with our city's infrastructure. Namely what? What what do you how do we change the infrastructure to make it safer for everybody? Yeah, so I'm I'm with an organization called Bike Grid Now and we want a network of streets that prioritize bikers, pedestrians, you know, people in wheelchairs. It's done through redesigning the streets, adding uh, things like raised crosswalks, separated and protected bike lanes. Basically we want it to make it as easy as possible to drive. Drivers shouldn't have to think about staying within the speed limit, for example. The streets will basically just enforce that. We have something like that over by the Thompson Building or the Daily Center, right? Yeah, we have we have a couple areas in Chicago that have decent bike infrastructure, but still as a whole, it's just been completely neglected. Is it a matter of financing or will, or probably both, I suppose, but I mean... It strikes me as this is more complicated than just painting some white lines on the pavement. Yeah, and we have some painted bike lanes, which, you know, they're there, but most times drivers just don't, they just ignore them. They, they can drive right through it, and it doesn't cause any issues for them. What we're advocating for um, on larger arterial roads is physical barriers that make it impossible for a driver to even do that. Right, right, right. And and uh, it seems to be like there's 
one area downtown where, in fact, they have sort of segregated physically. I don't remember exactly what mechanism they used, but it was almost impossible for the car to be on the bike lane and the bike to be in the car lane. You have this Ride Real app that's in beta form, but I understand we can go there now and see what you've posted, and that is videos of what? What do we see when we go there, Ben? Yeah, so I'm calling for uh, people riding bikes to use some sort of dash cam. You can do it on your phone. You can get your own camera and just record their rides. And whenever something happens uh, that is basically a failure of infrastructure, you know, whether it's a driver cutting in front of the bike, you know, these are very, these are, these could be deadly things and they have been deadly things in Chicago. So I'm asking bikers to record the ride and upload any events, incidents that would, you know, make them that made them feel unsafe and so anybody can go on uh the website is ridereal.app and they can see all these um incidents that i have been uploading and other people in the chicago bike give me an example what have you put up there what do i see when i go there yeah so there's one example where um so i was going uh south on halstead and uh halstead in chicago just north of that the bike lanes just kind of disappear. There's there's no infrastructure for it. Streets are extremely wide, and you see a SUV driver just blowing past me um, at you know probably 35, 40 miles an hour. And there's absolutely nothing physically protecting bikers from that behavior. What about this? Would you be posting video showing bicyclists doing something unsafe and making the roads unsafe? I think um, I think there's a very big difference between people on bikes and people on cars. People on bikes don't kill people. Uh, cars are very large, and oftentimes these streets allow them to, you know, not really have to pay attention to the streets, and they are the ones causing vehicular violence. Again, I want to push that this is not an individual, like, this is not the fault of individual drivers. This is the infrastructure itself. So I don't think it's fair to, you know, equivalate what drivers are doing with what bikers are doing. That's an interesting uh, sort of position to stake out, but maybe that's really where this argument should take place or this conversation should take place. It shouldn't be an argument, not who's at fault. Uh, is it because if you did what I did for a living, you would hear from both sides all the time. People are as mad at bicyclists as cyclists are at cars, but we wouldn't even be having that conversation if we just had a safer place for both groups to exist, right? Exactly. And (laughs) is the city interested in this? Um, I mean, maybe we could all post videos, but I wonder what what the lever is going to be to get something to change. Right, so I I plan on reaching out to alders and city council um, with these videos and try to give them like a weekly report of, hey, here's 30 videos that were taken in your ward where, you know, if just one little thing had gone wrong, a biker could have been seriously injured or killed. Um, Through Bike Grid now, um, as an organization, we've been reaching out to alder uh, candidates and mayoral candidates and trying to get them to endorse this idea of a bike grid, which is, uh, 10% of Chicago city streets prioritized for bikers, pedestrians, which basically just means, you know, slow speed limits and, uh, you know, physical protection. And we have had, I believe, over 30 um, mayoral and other candidates um, endorse us already. 
There's a piece in the Sun-Times from Andrew Mack, who is with the Chicago Bike Grid Now group, and he's echoing a lot of the things you're saying in the Sun-Times. We know how to prevent traffic deaths. The answer is to discourage driving personal cars and encourage active transportation alternatives like walking, cycling, and taking transit. Bike Grid Now, what does that mean, Chicago Bike Grid Now? Well, the bike grid is this concept that we're looking at Chicago, and, and we have a very particular way our streets are designed, which is, I'm sure everyone's aware, the grid, where it's very easy to get from place to place uh, and, you know, without a lot of complex navigation. And we just want to take 10% of those streets, and not we're not really asking to remove cars necessarily from those streets, but we want to make them stress-free routes. For, to be on a bike or if you're walking, and mostly just side streets. Um, we're also, uh, so, so basically that would just, a biker could get anywhere in the city safely and comfortably. Is there a city that you aspire us to be? Um, is there, in the United States or elsewhere in the world, a city that you think does this well? I don't think in the United States there is anything that we should really strive for yet. Um, but there are uh, Paris, Milan, two examples in Europe that in a very short amount of time, like within a couple years, they have completely overhauled their streets. They had streets very similar to what Chicago has, but in a, in a couple years with their uh, leadership, they have been able to make a, a similar yeah. bike grid happen. Boy, when you see some of those cities, it is amazing how many people are riding bikes. First of all, we got to be all willing to do that in all kinds of weather. And then we need to be able to get good at it. And then we need to have the infrastructure to do it. It would be such a cultural shift, but it has to start somewhere. So um, I, I like the attitude and I, I'm interested in this app. If you want to see what's happening now, you can go to ridereel.app. That's A-P-P, ridereel.app. Ben Harvey's the creator of that. Nice to talk to you today, Ben. Thanks for your thoughts. Thank you, you too. This is WGN, and you're listening to the Trust Business Lunch, and we've got more business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Trust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Owners have revealed a replacement for Chicago's Tavern on Rush. Cranes reports the new restaurant set to open this spring will be called the Bellevue after the cross street it sits on, Rush and Bellevue. And the report says it won't be a steakhouse. It'll serve contemporary American cuisine, but a menu's still being put together. Owners of the building at 1031 North Rush want the Bellevue to be a restaurant where people from the neighborhood can eat multiple times a week. Tavern on Rush had been there since the early 1990s. The building is currently being rehabbed. Megabus is returning to Chicago. The company's teaming up with Miller Transportation to launch and expand services here. The partnership will increase service options in 56 cities and connect Chicago to 23 cities. The partnership will also enhance service in Louisville, Detroit, Memphis, and Nashville. Megabus suspended service in Chicago in 2020 when demand dropped because of the COVID pandemic. The company had already been cutting back service starting in 2016. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Trust Business Minute. Business of food time. Here's Steve Alexander. Here we go. Cue the banjo. We're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. 
Well, liking is one thing, affording them is another. Eggs have been the headliners for food inflation, with average prices jumping 60% last year. The good news, though, as we've been hearing lately, is that prices have been steadily edging lower. But down on the chicken farm, there's still a problem that's keeping prices from returning to what they were in 2021. Tens of millions of layers, the hens that lay eggs, were killed because of the bird flu, and the replacements are not ready yet. Shale Shagam is with the USDA's Department of Agriculture, and he's got the latest egg numbers. During December, we produced about 652 million dozen, which was about 6.6% below a year ago. Now, those eggs were being produced by 308 million layers, which was also down about 5.8% from a year ago. And he says birds exposed to the disease were still being culled in December, which helped push prices of eggs higher. We did peak just before Christmas uh, at about $5.40 a dozen. But here's the good news. We are estimating that egg prices for the year will average about $2.05 a dozen, which is down from what we have last year of $2.82 a dozen. What? You may be asking, what store is he shopping at? He's not. That's the average wholesale price for all sizes and grades of eggs. And we're still way above the $1.18 for a dozen eggs we saw in 2021 at the wholesale level. Meanwhile, there is a farmer's organization crying foul. Farm Action, which is described as a farmer-led advocacy group, claims major egg producers have colluded to fix prices and gouge farmers and consumers, and is calling on the Federal Trade Commission to investigate. From the farm to your belly, today is National Peanut Brittle Day. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Text messages based on the last conversation with the guy who wants to find a way to ride a bicycle more safely around Chicago. And many of you are telling me that it's the cyclists that are the problems, not the cars. And as I said a moment ago, listen, and, and I see bicyclists I have been a bicyclist <laughs> through the pandemic. I got about the city mostly on my bike, but I have seen cyclists blow through stop signs and red lights and weave in and out of traffic all the time. Uh, I think the conversation is best had the way he and I were having it, and that is, okay, uh, cyclists are bad or good. Drivers are mean or stupid or good. I don't, I don't care. Let's just find a way to accommodate the two, uh, accepting that that's the way it is right now, which is dangerous. And then you can blame me and I'll blame you. But wouldn't it be nice if we had a system to make it safer? Today, the Your Hometown Tour makes a stop in the beautiful suburb of Elgin. Ride with us all day as we show you what some call the city in the suburbs. Sponsored by Illinois Lottery. Doing good and supporting Illinois communities. Come on, let's explore Elgin. And Lacasio joins us now, the president of the Elgin History Museum Board. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the uh, history of that town. Hi, Ann, you're on WGN. How are you? For having me today. It's our pleasure. So uh, you're the president of the History Museum Board. Is there a history museum there in Elgin as well? We do. We have a beautiful museum housed in uh, the, the former building of the Elgin Academy. It's from 1856 in the Greek Revival style. And we have two floors of exhibits there for uh, many different things showcased about Elgin. We have an area for uh, people to learn about the pioneer days. We have a great exhibit about the Elgin watches, which were created in Elgin for about 100 years. We have an exhibit about the road races that happened in Elgin from 1910 to 1920. And we're also, you know, focusing on all the different 
types of people that have come to Elgin over the years and have made this place their own. Who are some of those people? Are you talking about ethnicities? Ethnicities, ethnicities like nationalities. From, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, some of our you know, first immigrants were from German, uh, Germany. We had quite a few newspapers in German, quite a few German churches. But over the years, we've had uh, you know, different people settling here. Um, we had African-Americans come right after the Civil War. Uh, we had a great exhibit, which travels now, called Project 321 about them coming here and where they settled in Elgin. Uh, we had uh, Jewish people come. We've had an exhibit on that. And, of course, our most recent um, nationality or Hispanic people that's come to live in Elgin. Uh, road races? I mean, I know about the butter. I know about the clocks. I know about the street <laughs> sweepers. Road races, huh? Yes, road races. That it, that always gets people's attention. Um, it happened from 1910 to 1920, and there was a race course that would go from downtown Elgin out through the country, um, and it ran for about 10 years, and it was pretty well known. It was a nationally known race. I guess Elgin is maybe best known, though, for the clocks and watches? Yes, it is. Definitely. The um, the watch factory, the Elgin Watch Factory, started during the Civil War and ran for almost 100 years. And we actually have a, um, a, a astronomy place, I'm, uh, the observatory, thank you, observatory, <laughs> yeah. that was used to set the time of the watches. And their tagline was, you know, set, set your time by the stars. And uh, that's still open to the public, um, that you can see it for, you know, they have occasional programs there. Do they still make the sweepers or municipal vehicles there? Yes, they do. Elgin was the home of the first factory. They invented the uh, street sweeper here in Elgin, and we are still proud that they are still here making the street sweepers in Elgin. And how do folks do this? Do they? Uh, are you open every day of the week? What, what do I do if I want to check this out? Well, you can go to elginhistory.org to find out more about the museums. And we are open from Wednesday to Saturday, I believe it is, um, from 11 to uh, yeah, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. We also have events that happen on Saturdays and throughout the year. We, in fact, have one coming up this Friday night. Uh, it's going to be Elgin Trivia at 7 p.m. <laughs> and you can get tickets online. Tickets online. Okay, at, at elginhistory.org. Should I go there for that? Elgin History. Yeah, elginhistory.org. And Locasio is the president of the Elgin History Museum Board, elginhistory.org. Nice to talk to you today, Anne. Have a good Friday night. Thanks for having us.